0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill.
1: Yo, 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 coming at you live from some sweet, sweet
2: blueberry muffins. Amy Knight.
3: Hey, hey, from Nashville.
2: (laughs) Dan Shapir. Hi,
4: from Tel Aviv, and I'm really hungry now.
2: Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. I had my son brought me some good pancakes this morning. So maybe not as good as AJ's muffins, but they were still good. These are good I have
0: the I have the blueberry muffin quest bars in my office. So
2: I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week we
0: have a special guest, and that's Thomas Steiner.
5: In English it's Steiner, in German yeah. it's Steiner. And I'm joining from Hamburg, Germany. Hi. Or hello. Guten Abend. Cool. Do you want to just introduce yourself
0: real quick? Let us know who you are, why you're famous, all that stuff. Oh, wait, I think you got the wrong Thomas
2: Steiner in that case.
5: But um,
2: <laughs> oh, you'll be famous after not, this podcast. Not there famous. we go.
5: <laughs> but yeah, thanks for inviting me. So yeah, I'm a developer at Google working for the Chrome team at Google. We work on making the web better. And uh, a lot of our folks from the team, I would say, not only work on making Chrome better, but also making the web better. So we have Chrome Developer Advocate on our title, but essentially most of us really see ourselves as Web advocates.
0: Nice. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're gonna know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is, awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's gonna save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, repping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They're definitely gonna help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at javascriptjabber.com slash Raygun. Well, if you're working on Chromium, you're working on Chrome, Brave, Opera, and Edge, if I remember right. And (laughs) Edge,
4: yeah. Yeah, I'd like to say that we are really lucky that the good of the web happens to align so well with what's good for Google, that Google is able to throw its weight around for the benefit of all of us in that regard.
0: Yep. So when we're talking about what I'm seeing is just kind of these native capabilities for web applications through the browser. I'm curious what what brought this along, because usually we see this with things like Electron or, uh, you know, on the phone with like React Native or things like that. And so I'm, I'm, curious, is there a different use case that we're talking about here? Or are we just looking to enable apps that people have already built in different ways? Or I, I guess, what's the use case or the area of concern here that this is supposed to solve?
5: So something we observed, and I probably should say before that, I used to work with partners of Google in a previous role as a technical or mo- mobile technical solutions consultant. And something we saw was a lot of people were developing apps on native platforms for Android, for iOS, for Windows Phone back then, obviously for so you have Mac OS, you have Windows 10. There's a lot of desire for people to build apps, but there's also a lot of desire for people to build an app only once. And most big brands, they probably have... Two apps and Android app and iOS app, and then they have a web app. But a lot of smaller companies also just have one Android app and then, uh, sorry, one, one web app and then one iOS app. Mm-hmm. And uh, they try to make things work across platforms. And more recently we see even more the desire of, Hey, can't we just make the web the most powerful platform that is supported universally, mobile devices on desktop devices? And a lot of the capabilities that you talked about were or still are supported in Electron, which essentially is a little bit just an labeler framework for making people program with something that feels familiar and that they can hire people for, essentially web, but that also at the same time has the capabilities of opening up all these platforms to web programmers. So if you have someone who is a JavaScript programmer, if you have someone who is a CSS designer, they can, with Electron, with React Native, with all these helper frameworks, build amazing applications that, in the ideal case, feel native and that just essentially run everywhere so that people can program only once and then get their applications out everywhere. And we were seeing this development happening more and more. Google obviously had its hat in the ring as well with Chrome OS. We had um, proprietary Chrome OS APIs that open up the Chrome OS platform. The native capabilities of the ChromeOS platform, and yeah, the developers wanted to go there. People really. Developed for these platforms, but yeah, at one point we saw like we need to make this easier. We need to allow people to just directly program for a web browser and not for a framework. So this is how, eventually, after uh, um, a couple of attempts, what we call Project Fugu became a thing. And yeah, this is what we what we work on on our team now.
4: Can you elaborate, like in more detail, what you mean by these native APIs or the APIs that are being added as part of Project Fugu? What they able doing that was not
5: possible before? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of APIs that we deal with in, in Fugu. One of uh... The ones I'm working on right now is, for example, the local fonts access API so that you can get access to the local fonts that are installed on a person's device. I'm working on the native file system API. I've done work on the wake lock API. A couple of folks have worked on contact picker API so that you can access to get that you can get access to a phone's address book. We have web OTP for SMS authentication and a phone number verification. So there's a lot of APIs. We have an API tracker that everyone can have a look at for all these APIs and different statuses, like is this something we are working on actively? Is this something we're planning? Is this something we just have a backlog for? But not started anything yet. This is something we have an explainer for. So there's this big document where everyone can see where we are, what we do, and essentially just get a status update on every single API with a very fine grade level. So people can dive into the box and see what's implemented in what browser version so that you can see like, I don't know, you're interested in native file system and you're working on directories and is directory handle implemented in Chrome 86. And you can just go there and see, is it supported yet?
3: I have a question. I'm trying to figure out the best way to ask it, but it's kind of revolves around, like, I, I see that all of this stuff is really important and it would be awesome to be able to use it. But how much of this do you think is like out of the developer's control, meaning we have, you know, for the web, Especially serve users who don't update their browsers or, or stuff like that. And do you think there's anything, if, if that is like a large portion of the problem, like do you think there's a way to help that move along?
5: So I think nowadays most browsers have moved to a so called evergreen model where the browser just keeps updating independent of the operating system. The big uh, exception, obviously, being iOS, where you still have the coupling of browser and operating system and macOS. But everywhere else, when you think Firefox, when you think Edge, when you think Chrome, uh, Chrome, the browser just updates and is evergreen. So most people, even on older Android devices that may not have the latest version of Android, would probably still have a relatively recent version of Chrome. So there's obviously people who completely ignore updates and uh, refuse to install them. that's
3: yeah.
5: Like the general population is pretty up-to-date when it comes to browser versions. And we're talking obviously about the stable version of browsers, so not the nightly builds, not canary builds, not the betas and so on. But yeah, even for the stable builds, people would in general, at least have the current version.
4: It actually reminds me of a funny thing that I recently, a few weeks back, I got this issue from Wix support about customer was having problems with websites breaking on her browser. And uh, it turns out that she was still running Chrome 37. Which is like I don't know what it's like three, four, five years old. How old is that? <laughs> she never, ever, ever update updated. So, so yeah, it that does happen. Possible? I
1: Like I, yeah. I literally am not sure how that's possible because like Chrome pretty much at some point just crashes right? I mean, it, I was going to say,
0: I, I, I get to that point where Chrome takes over and I run out of RAM and then other stuff stops working. So then my computer's not working so I have to reboot and when I reboot, by then it's downloaded the latest version of Chrome and so when I come back, I, I'm running a new version of Chrome and it's a it's a vicious so, yeah, cycle that this happens is definitely, every few weeks.
4: Um... I was just going to say that it was just such an old version that I don't think they even had uh, auto-update. You had to yeah. specifically enable update or something like that. But oh, go on. I apologize interrupting you.
5: I guess it was something related to Windows XP because I think Windows XP is still running on a couple of old laptops that people actually would still use uh, but Chrome's yeah, like in the 30-ish
1: banks, hospitals,
5: I had a Windows XP laptop for the longest of time to do my taxes because uh, the German Tax Administration for the longest time had an application that only would run on Windows and the only Windows machine that I still had in my house was a Windows XP laptop. So it might have been me two years ago. Now, luckily, we moved on to the web with our taxes. We still have to pay them, but at least we can declare them on the web now.
0: One question that I'm wondering about with this, because you're talking about all these capabilities that are, you know, essentially being added to the browser in some way. And it reminds me a little bit of some of the other web APIs we have, like web Bluetooth and things like that, that are managed by W3C. So is this just another standard that is essentially being put out there by
5: Google Project Fugu? Or is it, how does that work? So first, Project Fugu is a cross-company project. So we have Intel on this project who work with us, and we have obviously Microsoft on board, and we have Google on board, and we all work together on this project. And the weird one out probably is Intel, and you might be asking why Intel. Turns out they looked at what actually is running on their CPUs, and it turns out in more than 50% of cases, it's a browser. So that's why they want to make sure that whatever runs on their CPUs, it runs fast. So that's why that uh, they actually have a browser team. And the question was on standard. So on Fugu, we work on APIs. We start with an idea. Someone thinks, wouldn't it be great if we had X on the web? And then someone from the team comes up with what we call an explainer, where they typically even on a private GitHub repo, I don't know, Jane Dane, whatnot, slash GitHub, blah, 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 comes up with an explainer document and just roughly outlines an API shape of the API for doing X. And people start to collect early feedback. And I was like, is this even a good idea? What do you think? Should we, should we starting to do do this. And the next level then would be a couple of yeah possible ways this could be going. So one would be they start actually implementing and just doing something, implementing this API shape behind the flag so that uh, people interested in X could set a flag in the browser and uh, just test it locally on their own browser instances and see what does X do? Does it behave the way it is supposed to behave? And eventually we obviously have the objective of making everything a standard. So we at some point move these private repos, these private ideas into the WICG, the web. I always have to think about the, the acronym Web Incubator Community Group. Yeah, Web Incubator Community Group. Here we go. Which is a standardization group that works on the uh, in, in the public, in the open, where people can come together and standardize ideas and come forward with, um, yeah, what should a spec look like for the API that does X. And at some point, after the implementation has uh, moved forward, we actually start with moving some of these APIs over to a proper WICG W3C repository. So for example, this has happened for WakeLock. So WakeLock has a W3C repository now and an official specification. Then we come to the stage where we have something that is developed in the open that has been implemented ideally by more than just uh, one browser. And people can then start and settle on a final spec. How should the final specification look like? We in between have something called origin trials, where we say this is a feature now that is ready enough for people to actually test in practice so that they can go and set a token on their developer so that when people are using these pages and they have Chrome, that their browser would see this token and then activate the API for them. So people can test APIs with real users, but in the sandbox of the origin trial. So like that, the core idea is, should we need changes on the APIs, we can still make them because nothing has really shipped in the sense of fully being in the open, but it has shipped with the special activation token that people need for the origin trial. Something we had before were, the so-called vendor prefixes so you had apis like full screen for example that had something like webkit request full screen i think was the full name of the api that eventually was so attractive that people started using it despite the vendor prefix leading to the very paradox situation where someone like firefox had to implement a webkit prefixed apis just to make them work on mozilla browsers well. so the idea with origin trials is to avoid that so that we don't bake an api design into the browser until it's finished the idea then being let's wait until enough people have tried it until we have figured out what are what are the edge cases that we didn't discover when testing locally that we didn't discover when we tested in our small population of uh, Chrome engineers or developer relations people, let's wait until a lot of people in the production world have tested it, like uh, big companies, small companies, independent developers, freelancers. So until everyone has had a chance to find bugs, find issues, find problems with the API shape, should it be, I don't know, returning this and that where it actually right now returns a string value, should it be returning an object or anything? So these kind of things and eventually say, okay, the origin trial went successfully, we may have some Final tweaks to the API shape, but then we ship the API in Chrome, and we then try to move it onto the W3C to make it an actual web standard.
1: Cool. So, what keeps people from just doing the same thing where they uh, are using an API that you know you don't otherwise want them to use? I, mean, I there, there's just a little bit of gatekeeping. Like, I have to go register my website at
5: developers.chrome.com/slash-origin-trials/slash-trials/slash-active. Yeah, exactly. So people have to register their websites. Edge, by the way, has the same system. So they have Edge origin trials that people can register for. Yeah, so the thing here really is we want to make sure that people give us feedback. So you get a token that is valid for a couple of weeks. Yeah, so you register your website at uh, the Google site or at Microsoft's origin trial site. You get a token back. This token is valid for a couple of weeks. But typically, origin trials run a couple of months, sometimes a lot longer, depending on how complex or not an API is. And then when you want to renew or when you have to renew your token because you want to continue using the feature, there's a step in our process. And I think also in Microsoft's process, we have to then enter feedback because what we want is we want to hear from developers, is this actually the right thing? Is this what we're implementing? Is this how developers would have uh, would have expected the API to work? And also what we want to hear as well is, has this enabled any, any new use cases? What would you do if this API were to go away or were not to, go, were not to be implemented? Is there a workaround that you would see? So we want to get feedback. And by having this token system, this is our way of enforcing feedback and asking people, if you want to continue to use this, you have to say what went wrong. People can obviously just type in not available or just whatever But a lot of developers actually do give us very valuable feedback. We invite them to then also comment on the GitHub repositories of these proposals so that we can get a better understanding, where are we with the standardization process? Do we maybe go back to the drawing board or is the API in a very good shape already.
4: Where do you put the token that you get? How do you actually use it? I'm just curious.
5: You go to the website and you get a token back, you copy it and on your page, insert a meta tag where you essentially have the, what's it called? The HTTP... HTTP... Quiv. something.
1: Yeah. HTTP yeah. hyphen equiv equals... Quotes origin hyphen trial quotes, and then content equals quotes your token quotes, and then that exactly. also needs to be put in any API request. So if it's something that has to deal with fetch or an API that would be making a non HTML page request, it needs to be specified in the request response headers origin trial colon and then token. Looking looking here at the Microsoft docs, as it were, because I just looked that one up when
5: you mentioned it. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. So as I said, it's something you copy paste. The idea is you want to send a header. If you can send a header, you use this meta. I always forget the HTTP equivalent, something, something. You copy paste it, you forget it. But the idea is you send a header with your application so that Chrome the browser or Edge the browser then knows what kind of origin trial it should activate or not. And if you base64 decode the token that you get, you can see that it's actually just, I think, the origin and uh, the name of the origin trial. And that's essentially it. So it's something that you put on the page. People don't really realize it. So users don't realize that they are part of an origin trial. For them, the browser just activates to say, they, then ideally, can you say it?
4: So Some of the APIs you've des- you're describing have not been available in browsers for a reason. And that reason is uh, security and privacy. So for example, you described one of the APIs that uh, you are working on, which is the obvious candidate for... Uh, security and privacy issues and that's access to the file system so how do you go about ensuring that the privacy and security are maintained in these apis
5: so all the APIs that we work on are reviewed by our by our security team. So it's not just that an engineer comes up with a cool idea. There's a security team that tries to find weak points in this API implementation. Is there something where things could go wrong? We have W3C Technical Advisory, advisory Group who are asked to review each of our proposals. So they would find weak spots that maybe our internal Chrome team wouldn't have found or vice versa. And we also submit everything to Mozilla and to WebKit to ask for their position. This essentially means a lot of the APIs get seen by a lot of different people with a lot of different viewpoints. So some viewpoint of a browser vendor might be we want to prevent this from happening. So they want to find weak spots. The other way around might be we want to have this shipping. So they might play down uh, on certain aspects. Ideally, this shouldn't be happening sure that a lot of people get their eyes on a proposal. We try to find all the weak spots, all the implementation weaknesses where things could go wrong. And also just by making sure a baseline checklist is maintained, like for example, only making available powerful features, When there is a secure connection, we try to get a lot of the like early API design issues. Like if you think back geolocation originally just worked over regular HTTP requests. So everyone who could sniff the connection could then sniff also geolocation responses. All this has been rectified by now, but like we don't. try try to not make these errors from the past again. Obviously, with each API, we do learn new attacks, we do learn about uh, new, I don't know, issues people come up with, but essentially we try to make sure that we get it right. We ask developers for feedback, we ask security experts for feedback, so we try to get in as many eyes as possible. And then for the very concrete case of the native file system API, we just make sure that certain things just can't be accessed. So something that would be fatal to access on a Linux system would be cetera passwords. So there's a, a block list of files and directories that you just may not access from a web, web application. And this includes your downloads folder, but as I said, also just sensitive files like or folders like your Windows uh, System 32, like these kind of things. There's just no way around it because the API makes sure that you can't access these uh, these these folders or these files.
4: Is the general approach is, uh, is it of limiting the API's capabilities or is it to request permissions or is it both? What's the general approach with this?
5: It's a mix of everything. So essentially what we try to do is we try to make sure that the API feels right for developers. So file system is a good example because there you have tiered access. So you have read access, you have write access, you have folder access, so you can grant access to an entire folder. And then we think of what is the permission model is uh, still happening. Like VS Code, there's online version, there's PWA version of, of VS Code. You probably wouldn't want to grant every single time you open the app access to slash something something projects. You just want this permission to be persisted. But when you think of other APIs, geolocation might be a good example. Maybe you want to grant access to a certain feature like your current location only once or only for one hour, but you don't want a website to persistently get access to your current location. So everything in between prompts with an expiry date, prompts with like, yeah, they, they just can't work because you have, as I said before, you have a system directory, for example. So the prompt would tell you, you tried to do that, but it actually doesn't work. To pickers, where in the case of hardware APIs, you have to specifically pick a device that you want to use. What else? We do have an approach where we say, look, we want to have this like local fonts, but we actually allow vendors or have it in a spec that vendors could also just lie. So rather than giving access to all local files, a vendor could lie and just give access to the website fonts and say, Say, Look, this browser has Arial, like every other browser in the world. Whereas another browser could say, "We are a browser who wants to enable design apps, so we want to give access to corporate fonts that people have access, uh, installed locally and that they want to access from the web." And like Google Sans is our internal Google font that you can uh, only find on Google devices. So. If you want to grant access to this and then have a design application that works with this font, you could do that. So it's very nuanced, very, yeah, like we want to make sure to get it right for, for average people. And we do have a UX team internally that also reviews what should the prompt be asking. Is this something that regular web developers would understand or, uh, sorry, not web developers, regular web users would understand. Would they understand what are the implications of clicking yes here or clicking no there? So we have this UX team who also make sure that we formulate these prompts in the Right way. And sometimes we just also have use cases that, in the context of, for example, idle detection, come up where we say idle detection is an API that gives you access to is the user currently using their computer or are they idle in the sense of the screen is blocked? They may be away from their keyboard or maybe they're just busy in another application. But not in the browser tab. So why do we want to know that? Because a lot of chat applications are run on more than one device. So you have maybe, I don't know, Slack running on your mobile device, but also on your desktop device. So the use case here would be if you know, if we know that you're idle on your desktop, but yet that you were active on your mobile, maybe this is where you should be receiving a notification, not receiving receive the same notification twice. So long story short, what we tried initially was to pair or group the notifications permission with idle detection. A lot of people pushed back and said like, Wait, I just want to know if the, pe- if the person is using their computer. This has nothing to do with notifications in certain use cases. So one use case would be, for example, a banking website where you log in and then you go somewhere else. Like, I don't know, your, your notes application on a Mac and you look for someone's banking account number. And then you go back to the tab and the software has logged you out. This is a very annoying thing for users to happen. So you were still using the computer, but the banking website thought because tab was no longer actively used, you were not using your computer, so they locked you out. With idle detection, this is a use case where you could digitally prove to the API in the browser that you're still using the computer, but you're just not interacting with the banking tab right now. So the banking tab could be kept open in a sense that you don't get logged out, then you can come back to the tab and paste in the whatever banking number, banking account number. So for this use case, you don't need notification access. And we all know how annoyed people are by notification access prompts. So this is why eventually we decoupled it and said, look, this is something else. This is idle detection. We don't need notification access, even if a lot of use cases are grouped with notifications, but it's not the only way to present this permission.
0: Are you stuck trying to figure out how to get to the next stage of your developer career? Maybe you're just not advancing fast enough in the job you're in, or you're trying to break in in the first place, or for whatever reason, you keep going to interviews and it's just not working. You want to land that dream coding job, but it just doesn't seem to be working out. Well, Johnson Mez has written a book for you called The Complete Software Developer's Career Guide. He walks through each stage of the development career and all of the things that you need to do in order to move up, keep learning, keep growing, and find that next job that's going to get you where you want to go. So if you're stuck and trying to figure this stuff out, go pick up the Complete Software Developer's Career Guide. It's the number one software development book on Amazon. It's sold over 100,000 copies so far. I actually have friends of mine that reach out to me and go, hey, do you know this John Sanmez guy? Because his book is awesome. So go get the book. You can get it at devchat.tv slash complete guide. That's devchat.tv slash complete guide.
4: I'm really glad or happy to hear that you're investing effort in coming up with the really appropriate permission dialogues, because if there's one thing that really annoys the heck out of me when I'm using the web these days are all the permission notifications that I get whenever I access like literally almost any website where they ask me for cookie permissions on the other, on one hand, and notifications permissions on the other. And I have, and I need to accept the cookies, but I want to block permi- uh, notifications and I'm always worried that I'll accidentally do the reverse and up allowing notifications when I meant the cookies. So how how do we get around the potential avalanche of permission requests? I mean, if I have a website that needs to access, let's say, I don't know what else you might need notifications, but it's, let's say, geolocation and the camera, and maybe a USB device, and I don't know what else. And I'm like going to be inundated with, with all these notification permission requests. How is it going to be handled?
5: There's a couple of ways we think internally and also externally. So most of this, most of these thoughts are public on repos somewhere of the W3C. So one way is to just say, is there a way to group permissions semantically? So typically when you have something like Zoom on the web, you would have access to the camera and to the microphone at the same time. And it's a, perfectly valid use case to say this is a VC video conferencing software, it needs both. So if we you know that a lot of permissions are asked together frequently, like before I said the example with idle detection and notifications, maybe is there a way to just group them? And I'm not saying that we have solutions or that we have implemented this in, in all cases, but like camera and microphone today can be grouped. So you can ask for them together. So the idea here is is there a way to find out what kind of permissions can go together and what makes a coherent story for the user as well? And one idea could be to just say we group applications into categories and we say this is something like an editing uh, application so you might want to get a grant access to the clipboard to the file system to I don't know local fonts maybe even but you don't want to give access to geolocation because an a text editor doesn't know your geolocation commonly and then we could say this is a video conferencing app so as I said a microphone and camera we could say this is something like I don't know a shopping application so It might not need any permissions by default, but a lot of these applications need a shipping address. So maybe if you have shipping address and when you maybe then also, which happens in some markets, in order to order something, need to confirm your phone number, maybe then having web OTP as a permission or as a, as a, as an API. That can be used on the, on this website grouped together would make sense. So this is one approach. Semantic permission bundles or whatever you want to call it. Another approach that people are thinking about is maybe is there a way to just list in something like web app manifest what would be the permissions that this app is going to ask eventually. So that we can say you want to install what not a text editor PWA. It knows beforehand it wants to use clipboard and file system and what not local fonts, so that then on install, you could say, yes, okay, I'm fine with that. We've seen from native applications, this is not necessarily something a lot of people understand immediately, or some, sometimes you're also just like, I'm fine with two of those, but not the third. So you want to accept two, but not all of them. If everything is asked for permission at the beginning, there's just no way around it. So maybe there's something in between where I could say, as long as we list the permissions in the manifest, but then ask for them ad hoc only when they're needed, maybe this could work maybe certain permissions could then even work without a prompt. We have some PWAs that can go on the Play Store with trusted web activity where certain permissions are granted automatically. For example, notifications will be granted automatically on the Play Store. So these kind of thoughts and circumstances come together. And as I said, it's pretty nuanced. We want to make sure that we get it right. The worst to happen is what we call permission fatigue, where people just automatically click no, or some people assume automatically clicking yes in order just to get into a site. So we want want to make sure that all this doesn't happen. And something else we are looking for is just something where we look for what do the majority of people do for this site. And some of this data actually is publicly available. So there's a Chrome user experience report where you can get information about how people use your notification prompts. Do people on your news site say yes or say no? And do people on your WhatNot shopping site say yes or no to a notification prompts? So with this data, we can then also make an educated choice and say, we want to show this prompt or we might want to show a more silent prompt. So you might have seen a blog post from the Chromium team a couple of, what was it, months back, I think, where they wrote about more silent or more quiet notification prompts. So choosing how to present a prompt, should it be a blocking prompt? Should it be a prompt that is yeah, a modal prompt, everything in between? And this was probably a very long-winded response to the question. So as I said, it's nuanced. We want to get it right. We don't always get it right at the first try, but we try to improve.
2: I understand the prompt fatigue. I know, for instance, for Mac users, when Catalina came out, there was they tried to increase the security. And so speaking for myself, there was a ton of security prompts. You know, this app wants to use this and that and the other. And pretty soon you're like, yes, 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 or no, no, no. And so... Uh, I totally understand about the property because what happens is pretty soon you start saying yes to stuff that you probably might not want to say
1: yes to or just go into the settings and turn it all off and reboot into safe mode and disable it so things work again.
2: <laughs> right. But yeah, my point being I even outside of, you know, the websites and, you know, OSs, that's a a
1: real issue. Oh man, yeah, Catalina's been such a pill and it's some of its security policies are incompatible with High Sierra and below, so if you make your app
5: work uh, just file permit oh, yeah yeah so that was a big a issue that
4: is sorry gone
5: Something from a Chrome point of view that is really bad is when you have double permission. So you have on Catalina, for example, when you, for the very first time, ask for access for an API, that then you first need to ask, may Chrome, the browser, use geolocation, and then may example.com use geolocation? So you have this double prompting. And if someone then accidentally clicks no and blocks the entire browser from asking for geolocation from notifications from whatnot, then no other site ever Request this permission again. So there's definitely a lot of yeah careful design that you want to make sure that you, that you get the prompts right and make sure that people know what they're clicking. And yeah, so Windows 7 I think was the first operating system where people got really annoyed at this when Windows 7 started asking for literally everything and every single time you wanted to make the smallest change, asked for confirmation. Do you really want to do that? Catalina got a little better because at least they ask it only once. But yes, setting up a new macOS uh, system can be quite annoying until. You have made your initial choice a set of choices for all your apps.
4: One API that you mentioned several times, I think you also said that you actually worked on it, is the access to uh, local fonts. And I recall that there was this whole thing about it recently because Safari basically said that they oppose this API. It's not that they're not, that they don't want to implement it now. It's like that they don't want to implement it ever or something like that because they're concerned about its use for fingerprinting. So what happened when when something like that happens? Like, does that literally kill the potential of having this API? Does it mean that we will always just have it in Chrome but never in, in Safari? What happens in situations like this?
5: So in the worst case, yeah, this is this is something that can happen that a vendor just chooses to not implement a certain API. Apple, they have gone public with this blog post where they wrote about sixteen APIs that they consider harmful and that harmful, and they, that they are not going to implement. What we want is ideally for them to still implement it so that it gives back something. But as I said before, when I mentioned the API, that they maybe lie and just say this browser has the set of WebSafe fonts installed, like all other browsers on this planet, so that people at least can still use the API. Yeah, it might just happen that some vendors never implement a certain API. We try to avoid that, of course, but it can happen. And what we want is we want at least to have a public record that we ask everyone So that's why I said, um, we filed a request for Mozilla's position. We send the email to the WebKit dev mailing list asking for an official WebKit position on each API. We have the tag review. And like that, we have on the record that a lot of people, a lot of experts have been consulted and then we go forward with a a decision which could be in the worst case only one vendor or only one engine implementing a certain API so yes So I've been looking at the list of the Chrome origin trials there's a
1: lot of interesting stuff there and some stuff that makes me sad like that we're getting rid of AppCache AppCache actually works really well once the bugs got fixed so there's it's interesting that it's not just new stuff there's also old stuff in here allow sync xhr. which, yeah, it's kind of scary to me that we're now saying it's okay to break websites that have certain features by just removing them and you got to remove it or your site's going to stop working with that functionality because you know not breaking the web has been something we've striven for for a long time but there's yeah there's there's the the idle detection like you said uh, the origin isolation so that the tab runs in a different process that's almost like you know going back a step in terms of you know the trade-offs of performances at one point we wanted everything to be in its own process and then we didn't and now apparently we do again that's like just kind of neat to know that a website has control over whether or not it's tab is its own process. Pointer lock unadjusted mouse movement, raw mouse movement. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know what that is. Maybe if I was more a front endy person, but I thought the mouse movement that we got was the raw mouse movement. I, I'm curious so, about that one. What is that? Do you know?
5: So let me make a couple of points first. So your first one was on uh, cache removal and synchronous removal of a synchronous API. So these are so-called reverse origin trials where, as you said, we're removing platform features. We, we're removing things that have been, yeah, by experts, determined to be bad APIs, bad decisions that were initially taken. And in these cases, yes, we uh, actually break the web and make stuff incompatible just because they were horrible choices and current, more secure, more adequate choices exist. This may, in the extreme case, actually mean that some site that you built 20 years back may no longer work, at least on browsers that that implement or that that take these changes on board, which ideally probably still should be all of them. But yeah, this, this is definitely something that can happen when it comes to all these different APIs. You will always find a link where you can click through for more info. And a lot of these APIs may seem a little niche. They may be only relevant for a certain population of web developers. And I don't have concrete details on the, on the most one, but I'm pretty sure it has something to do with games where Games in a browser want to get the rawest mouse movements, literally the signals from the mouse, so that they can pass them on as fast as possible. A lot of these features, like you said, origin, isolation, sound weird. The problem really is on the web, we can't have nice uh, things. So this old idea of having a CD where you cache certain APIs, and then if you are on example1.com and on example2.com, and they both happen to be using the same CDN resource, but then if you go on example.com, uh, example2.com, but then your cache would respond to this request. Sounds nice in theory. It is nice in practice as well, but people have been using it by just creating unique JavaScript files for each single user. And then they have whatever something, something hash ID, something JS that they make you load. And then when you move on to the next page, they check for the existence of this file. And if they know, that it's being served by the cache. In that sense, they know that you're the same user. So people have been abusing this for just identifying you across different sites that seemingly have nothing to do with each other, apart from maybe embedding the same ads or the ads from the same advertising provider, so that they could then knit all these different profiles together and still say, you are this person interested in shoes and also in wines whatnot so they sell this as an advertising profile and unfortunately this requires us to in this case make the web a little slower interestingly i was surprised as well by this it is a number of only i think three-ish percent of performance degrees that you get by that just because the caching effects at web scale are not that big so a lot of people still bundle wait say that one more time to for people to in the back example. yeah yeah the, you said you said that the caching benefits are what not that big? They're not that big in practice, just because a lot of people in practice decide to bundle whatnot jQuery or React or whatever. And with their sites, they have special builds. So commonly you have vendor.somethinghashed.js and you have app.somethinghashed.js. And if you look into vendor, you can see there's two instances of dash and uh, one instance of React and uh, maybe one version of jQuery that they bundle all together in one file. Would they be loaded from a different CDN? It might, uh, so, sorry, from the same. CDN then it might have this caching effect that everyone was expecting it to have but as I said in practice the effect was relatively low so I was negatively surprised by that.
4: Yeah it, it kind of uh, we had I think a lot of people would download real stuff from Cloudflare or places like that with the assumption that somebody else some other website would probably download it as well In that way they 'll benefit because it will already be locally cash, and like you said, this double keyed cash mechanism that was introduced to avoid fingerprinting and, and and breadcrumbs and stuff like that kind of kills it By the way, the interesting discussion that we had with your vice also from Google several episodes ago also touched on on these things and uh, on effective ways. To, to deliver uh, resources that would still benefit from caching. I, I would like to say that there is still even a benefit in even in a double-keyed cached world because things get cached in CDNs. So maybe they don't get cached in the browser, but they're still potentially at some CDN endpoint that might be closer to you because they're being served to a lot of people from a common source. But like you say, it's the web and we can't have nice things because people abuse the Nice things that we want to have, and and it's really annoying because all these APIs that you mentioned, the the it's it's basically the fact that it's taking so long to get them has to do with the fact that a lot of them can indeed be abused if you're not extra careful about how you implement them. I remember, for example, one API that you mentioned about access to to the clipboard. This this is an API that has been introduced and removed and then reintroduced and then removed by various browser iterations. Like for years, I remember like an API that existed on some version of Internet Explorer, like, I don't know, 15 years ago and then got removed because people were using it to copy passwords or, or inject stuff into, into the clipboard to do bad, bad things. Like they would try to push all sorts of macros into office documents that you might have open in the background and all sorts of weird stuff like that. So, so it's definitely a problem. with People are a problem. <laughs>
5: Yeah, we had this famous case uh, with iOS 14, where a pretty big site got caught for reading the clipboard on every single, or not site, app, for reading the clipboard on every single uh, load. So this definitely does does happen. and uh, We can see operating system vendors in this case, but also also browser vendors uh, potentially, they can innovate there and say, we might not implement this API exactly like that, but we may have a separate step. So Safari, for example, requires a special click on the uh, paste event so that when you paste something that then, or is it read? I forgot. Um, so no, I think it's paste. When, when you paste something that you then have this double confirmation that the API chat uh, can't just be called programmatically, but you have this button that always appears that is not part of the website, but just part of the browser uh, UI. So we do have this. Um, vendors can implement a spec, and validly so, or a spec conformantly, but at the same time also just have additional steps, hurdles security measures. So that's pretty good about the web because it's an open platform where people can do things the way they want, but still be spec compliant.
0: Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com code. That's audibletrial.com slash code.
4: Chuck, I think we need to push towards picks, I think, in terms of the time. I, I yeah, would also I like to be the same thing, to be first. Because I would have to leave soon, if it's possible.
0: Dan, why don't you go first then?
4: Yeah, I have the one pick. And that's the thing that's going on with Mozilla. To be honest, I'm not an expert exactly on what's going on there. I understand that on one hand, they've let a whole bunch of people go. And on the other hand, they just uh, renewed their agreement with Google, which potentially gives them a whole lot of cash. So I don't know exactly how this works. I think they let go something like uh, 250 people, which is which is a lot for an organization like Mozilla. And uh, I literally don't know what's going to happen with the future of their. Browser and other tools. Actually, the thing that bothers me almost the most is what's going on with the Mozilla Developer Network (MDN). I don't know about you guys, but I'm a huge user of MDN. Like every time I, I search for some API, I, it usually starts by MDN and then the name of the API, just to make sure that I get my my my. Uh, response from MDN and not from somewhere else, and and they essentially let all the the let go of all the paid employees, Mozilla employees that worked at MDN. So MDN still exists. But it's essentially now it's all going to be based on volunteers and not on the paid Mozilla employees anymore. And I don't know how that's going to work. And I really, really hope that MDN is not going to, to die because I just don't know how how I would make do without it. I'm thinking that a lot of organizations that have, uh, like certainly the big organizations, that employ web developers should step up and, and find ways to fund this project we we really can't afford to lose it and we can't even if it survives but survives badly that would be really really bad in my opinion and that's my pick for today
1: all right aj what are your picks give me a second i'm opening up my list i think i had something ready and hands here. Okay, yeah. So I'm gonna pick Comrat, which is a Markdown renderer written in Rust. Its total download size is something like two to three megabytes, depending on whether you're on Mac, Linux, or Windows. And it supports Common Mark. It's actually a clone, like a like feature for feature of GitHub's GitHub's own CMark. So it's got full GitHub flavored Markdown support. It's got All of the standard extensions, as well as just a plain common mark rendering mode. And so I was really excited to find that and really excited that the author was willing to put up pre-built binaries so that you can have a small, lightweight, simple way to render Markdown without having to have an entire tool chain installed for an application. Like uh, As as you may have picked up on, some of you, I really like it when there are standalone utilities that don't require having to have Python installed first or Node installed first or Ruby installed first or the Go compiler or the Rust compiler or the C++ compiler, etc. So it's really nice to have just small and simple tool and i've got a cheat sheet up for it on webinstall.dev slash c-o-m-r-a-c which i'll link to there and then i am also going to pick one of the products that i have worked on sonos radio because and, it, and it's different like it's it's not for the the spotify type people per se it's it's a very more like dare i say mature curated experience there's a focus on one you know a paying customer somebody that's actually bought a device that's a hundred dollars or more about i think they might have some that are in the lower fifty dollars or something like that 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 also would have this but the so sonos is a device uh, a speaker device for those that don't know i just kind of assume that most people know about that but i'm sure some people don't because they're in walmart ikea best buy wherever you go there's sonos speakers these days but Anyway, the the cool thing about Sonos Radio is that it's it's focused on the space in between the songs, and that sounds kind of weird, but you know, almost like it's like an ad or something. But well, that, I guess that's what it is. Is <laughs> it's it's overlays and ads. It's like the conversational bits, which is it's done in a different way. That it's it's more like what you'd hear on the traditional radio, and less like what you're used to with online services, because you've got like the DJ type people that are speaking over songs as they transition and fade, and it just Um, And they they give like really good Little short bio snippets of artists, or short like history bits of songs, and so it's just this very like if you're a music enthusiast, it's a very nice service because it it just has that feeling to it that you're you're more connected with the songs and the artist and the what and the transition between the two feels purposeful, not just on accident but like between two songs, etc. Anyway, that's my that's my my plug for Sonos Radio. All right, Amy, what
0: are your picks?
3: I am gonna go with um, I have like two lists. I have my Evernote list, and then I just have everything I star in GitHub, which I tend to neglect sometimes for picks. So I'm going to go over to what I've starred recently in GitHub. And I'm going to pick a repo that is just a bunch of Nginx configuration snippets and the explanation of them, because I think this kind of stuff would have been really valuable to me way back in the day, and a lot of it still is valuable now. It's going to be it for me.
2: All right, Dave. what are your picks? So I'm going to go with book today. Let's buy, grab it off my bookshelf here, if you'd think I'd be prepared, favorite historian of mine. His named Rodney Stark. He's a professor at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and it's a book about the Crusades. It's called God's Battalions, and it's, in his typical style, it's very, very detailed on the before and the after and what happened during the Crusades. You know, I think there's a lot of fallacies out there about the Crusades. I certainly have heard them repeated in multiple parts of the world. And it's just a real good, straightforward, unblemished history as to what was going on before, what caused them, what happened during, and so on. So just a, a really good thorough book.
0: Nice. I'm going to throw in a few picks of my own. Lately I've been uh, reading this book. I don't know if I picked it last week, but it's called Leadership in Turbulent Times and it's kind of an interesting look at some of the US presidents and namely Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt and uh, Lyndon Johnson. Some of them aren't necessarily my favorite president, but it's interesting to see the background and how they made calls regarding, you know, what they had to deal with because yeah, they they all went through different things in their presidencies and had to make some difficult calls. So anyway, yeah, those are my picks. Thomas, do you have some picks for us?
5: So my pick is, I guess, a website or web app, rather, that I've been contributing a very, very tiny bit to, which is called Excalibraw. It's a cartoon-style drawing app, and it was founded by Christopher Chadeau from um, Facebook. And I read this blog post where he just wrote about, I made this little app. Back then, it could do a very small set of the things it can do today. His approach was to say, look, I grant everyone write access to the repo or push access to the repo from the beginning. So I was intrigued and I so was like, hmm, wait, that's that's a very courageous move to, say, to just say everyone can get push requests from the beginning. I looked around and there were a couple of things that people implemented and uh, had started working on. It was this amazing community where just random folks Con- uh, contributed amazing features ranging from I don't know. Uh, just a couple last ones were blue points, so you can have diagrams that have glue points in between them, and if you move more- one box, the arrows will stay connected to the glue points and actually just reorient depending on uh, the orientation of the boxes and stuff. It has an amazing dark mode. It has whatnot a component library where you can just say, I need this and that component frequently. So you can just put it in a shelf and then pull it out and uh, have your own custom shapes that you can just occasionally use whenever you need them. And my tiny contribution was that I implemented a native file system access to, to this API. So it was just essentially a little contribution that allowed people to save Files and open files again and be like actual files. So people could just then press Command Save. It would just magically save, not download and not. If you if you have worked with apps like that in the past, you would have a download for every single iteration of the files. You would have file one, file two, file three, file four, and so on. So you were not overwriting files, but you were actually downloading them each time for a new file. So this small change that feels very natural but just a relatively big move for the for this application and it also uses a couple of fugu apis i absolutely absolutely can't take credit for them they just did it like you can copy images into it you can paste images into there it has a right click menu it's a full-blown desktop PWA. it runs on mobile it's just a very well-made responsive application and um, the best about it is the community and um, Yeah, I'm happy to have made this super tiny contribution to it. And I invite everyone, A, to try it and B, to contribute to it. The community is really great.
0: Cool. All right, Thomas, if people want to connect with you on the internet, where do they find you?
5: I'm Tomayak almost everywhere. So that's T-O-M-A-Y-A-C on Twitter, on GitHub. That's my domain name as well. So that's where you have to find me. And yeah, so I'm happy to answer more, I don't know, detailed questions that didn't get an answer in the podcast. And yeah, looking forward to hearing, hearing from folks.
0: All right. Well, thank you for coming. This has been really, really interesting.
5: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. We'll wrap up, folks. And we'll have another episode next week. Right. Adios. Max out. Adios.